You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to Plugged In. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining Alex, I'm Jordan McGillis. As many of our listeners probably know, there's a bill working its way through the Colorado State Legislature, which, if passed, will have major implications for the oil and gas industry going forward. SB 181, which would allow cities and counties to use their planning and land use powers to regulate oil and gas, passed the state Senate last week, and I believe just earlier this week it moved out of committee in the state house. Joining us to discuss the economic implications of SB 181 is Chris Brown, the Director of Policy and Research at the Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we jump into the specifics of SB 181, why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of a background on Common Sense Policy Roundtable? Yeah, thank you. Common Sense Policy Roundtable is a free enterprise think tank uh, based here in Colorado. We focus on developing economic and policy research on some of the most critical issues facing the state. Uh, And I should note that a majority of our research is released on behalf of a partnership of five organizations here in the state called the REMI Partnership that includes four other business organizations that have broad interests in seeing uh, continued economic prosperity and sound public policy that promotes economic growth and, again, prosperity for the citizens of Colorado. And that includes uh, Colorado Association of Realtors, Colorado Bankers Association, Denver South Economic Development Partnership, and Colorado Concern. Certainly sounds like SB 181 is something that falls in your guys' purview, and you guys released a paper uh, on the economic impacts of this, uh, of this proposed legislation earlier this month. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on the oil and gas industry there in Colorado? We recently, back in, I think it was back in October, we had a guest on where we were talking about uh, Proposition 112, which was a proposal that essentially would have banned oil and gas uh, production in the state. And from my understanding, that plays a pretty big role, uh, what we're talking about here with SB 181. Sure, yeah, and I'll, I'll try to work up to some of the recent initiatives and, and Senate Bill 181. I think just at a high level, what's important to understand about oil and gas industry in Colorado is the extent to which the major basin that the primary basin for new oil and gas drilling is the Denver-Julesburg Basin located around Denver and just to the north and east of the city along the front range where you have a majority of the state's population and major urban areas, including Denver, Boulder, um, and Fort Collins. And over the last number of years, as the state has seen a significant amount of growth, uh, economic growth and population growth, you have a situation where you have a combination of increased productivity from oil and gas drilling and the need to continue to have new, new exploration. At the same time, you have new residential communities and residential growth spreading outside of traditional urban areas. And we've had a uh, sort of an ongoing conflict that's arisen and, and, and therefore public policy has come up in different forms to try and regulate that interaction between 
continued residential growth and, and oil and gas. And as you mentioned, last fall, there was a citizen-led initiative, Proposition 112, that would have imposed a 2,500-foot setback on a wide range of surface locations, including homes and uh, even things like sensitive or dried waterways. And that was actually not the first attempt to put something like that on the ballot. We, we, this organization has released several studies over the years on these large setbacks, the economic impacts of these large setbacks and the extent to which it impacts new drilling and the really focusing on the macroeconomic impacts as that industry and is a significant contributor to the Colorado economy. And that failed, that initiative failed, as you mentioned, in November. And while in December, new rules around setbacks and schools were actually imposed in good faith negotiation with the industry, schools, and other leaders, we've now seen uh, the introduction of Senate Bill 181 uh, less than three weeks ago, I guess about two and a half weeks ago, introduced on a Friday afternoon and has already passed through the Senate. As you mentioned, it passed a committee in the House yesterday after another marathon uh, of testimony spanning into the late hours of the night, maybe even the early morning, and uh, seems to be headed towards passage in the House and possibly back to the Senate or to the governor's desk here uh, in, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, so the paper that you guys released earlier this month, which uh, describes the economic impacts of this proposal, um, you guys outlined four key provisions there that which you guys look at the, uh, the impacts of. Do you mind just outlining those for our listeners and explaining what exactly uh, you guys are concerned of there? I guess the best way to describe it is, is grants pretty broad new authorities particularly to local governments and to the and grants discretion to the director of the CO, the COGCC, the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission that regulates and grants permits for uh, oil and gas drilling. And I think that what was summarized in the testimony that we heard and the discussion going on at the uh, state capitol, those that are opposed and concerned to this is really the significant amount of uncertainty that the industry faces and would face and will face um, if and when this this particular bill passes. And so our concerns were in having studied Proposition 112, recognizing the significant economic impacts that are far reaching outside of the oil and gas industry. Uh, to urban areas and Denver and, and throughout the state, really the extent to which these new authorities could significantly limit new oil and gas drilling. And the original fiscal note mentioned the ability for these new authorities to promulgate rules up to and including a moratorium. And so we we looked at that discussion. We, we recognized the uncertainty and the, the entire effort is to prioritize, the stated effort is to prioritize health and safety when siting and permitting new oil and gas, but it removes language that is traditional across any new, regu- you know, reviewing and, and promulgating any new rule that requires technical and economic feasibility. 
sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis to understand the extent to which a new rule or, or new regulation would be cost-effective or even feasible. And so that grants an immense amount of uncertainty, and we wanted to put together a couple scenarios that just highlighted uh, the risks to the Colorado economy going forward. Chris, a lot of uh, people who are on the conservative, free market, libertarian um, side of this discussion might respond positively to the idea of power being decentralized from the state government to the local governments. Are you seeing any of those sorts of arguments being made in favor of SB 181? Yeah, certainly. And I think local governments are seemingly split in a lot of ways. Well, this, this is sort of divided, you know, the, the state in many ways. But and and some local governments do want the authority. I don't. It's less of a, in my interpretation, is less of a desire to promote free market or a more decentralized approach. It's it's more of an ability to respond to the political pressures that local jurisdictions might be facing. And so, again, that inherently brings about risks to the industry that we might face, um, you know, jurisdictions that have increased political pressure. Uh, on the other end, some of the other concerns from local jurisdictions are around the language that will be overlapping jurisdictions and therefore overlapping controls, potentially county, city, state, and it grants the authority to the uh, entity or the jurisdiction that has, and I'll summarize, prioritized health and safety and developed a rule that is rationally designed. And so I think a lot of local jurisdictions, particularly the testimony from Commissioner and others in Weld County, is the extent to which their local rules that local government already has an incredible amount of authority, I should note, okay. in siting, in land use. They already have a lot of control as it relates to land use policy that there might be conflicts and it would actually, local governments might have their own rules overruled by other jurisdictions. So I think there's a conflict that arises in the current language. Okay. You briefly alluded to political divides within the state. Can you talk about those divides and whether those are geographic, economic, uh, or what have you? Sure. Yeah, I think in Proposition 112, if you just looked at the vote and how that uh, turned out, the majority of the votes in favor of uh, the oil and gas setback, as again in Proposition 112, were from both Denver County and Boulder County, and so the two two large two largest urban areas in the state, along with certain mountain communities, and then a few communities and counties uh, on the western. Uh, throughout west, the western slope and in the south. But so they were really concentrated in the urban areas, largely where oil and gas is not occurring. And okay. so it is it is divided regionally, politically. But if you just look at who supported where, where there was a majority, it was clearly in the city of Denver and Boulder County. Again, majority of the drilling is in a county just north of Denver and, and Adams called Weld County, and so, but that that county overwhelmingly did not support Proposition 112. Yeah, so why don't we jump into the uh, the economic impact scenarios that you guys outline in the paper? I think 
overall you guys give seven different scenarios but um, if you want to just pick out uh, the two or three that you think are most relevant and just talk about the direct impacts on oil and gas production and then also if we could get into what you guys found uh, in terms of impact on uh, GDP and uh, employment. Sure and we were fortunate the results of our study were and some of the findings and some of the initial introduction were actually read in Senate testimony last week by very uh, actually several Senate uh, members on the floor because of the potential uncertainty and the range of impacts. And so we outlined seven scenarios. Our main focus was in describing the extent to which eliminating just a fraction, well, I shouldn't say fraction, but a portion, up to 33%, 50%, or up to 100% of new production, the extent to which that over time has a significant impact. So if we were to sort of put an upper and lower bound, we had a scenario that looked at eliminating 33%, so a third of new production. And in the first year, that would amount to 9% of the entire industry. So nearly 10% of the entire industry by 2030, so 11 years out, that 33% reduction in new production would amount to roughly 30% loss in total production value across the entire state. And the economic impacts of that scenario translate by 2030 to a little over $11 billion in lost GDP and nearly 60,000 fewer jobs in the state. That could be compared to a 50% reduction in new production over the next 10, 11 years that by 2030 would double the job loss uh, reducing total employment by roughly 120,000 jobs by 2030 and eliminating uh, roughly 20, little over $21 billion a year in GDP. And so the, the macro impacts, the aggregate macro impacts, and then the fiscal impact in terms of state and local tax revenue would be significant. Again, that range of a third loss in new production to 50% loss in new production by 2030 would be a range of about $650 million in less state and local tax revenue up to $1.3 billion in lost state and local tax revenue annually. And for a state with a budget, a state budget of, uh, let's say general fund of 10, 13, billion dollars, you can see relatively how significant that might be for Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think one of the issues that you guys also talk about is that given the wide range of outcomes that could potentially happen here, the state's fiscal solvency and its credit rating are issues that come into play. Yeah, the, you know, the potential unintended consequences, aside from the, econ- you know, the loss in economic value and the impact on you know, Colorado citizens and those that are working in this industry and, and working in Denver in professional services and engineering and, and, and all the sort is tremendous. But I think what is also not understood and not really appropriately detailed in the discussion around the fiscal impacts are the extent to which state and local governments would be at a significant loss. And 
the extent to which you either see reductions in services or you have to make up for those losses. Uh, one, one issue I think we pointed out, we've studied the state's pension uh, quite extensively. And just last year, the legislature approved a, a direct appropriation of $250 million a year, $225 million a year from the general fund to pay off the unfunded liability in this, again, para, the state's, the state and local pension. And that could be something very easily if you saw a significant reduction in state and local revenue that could be used to fund and backfill school funding, other government efforts. And the impetus for the appropriation out of the general fund was different credit, credit rating agencies had suggested that due to the low funded ratio and the unfunded liability that was growing in the state pension, that there was a significant threat to the state's credit rating. And so when you would need to backfill, inevitably backfill, and prioritize general fund money and other revenues to make up for this lost revenue, you run into significant other risks. Um, and there's a lot of other interactions on the fiscal side that get quite complex, but I think are important to understand, uh, and some of which came out in testimony from those that are on the ground. But I don't think in the two weeks that this bill has been public, that all of those implications are really understood. Did you m- mention the short period that this has been uh, debated in the in the Senate, at least, and um, it's moving its way to the House, that there's been a lot of sort of odd uh, things that have gone on. The Democrats were required to read the bill in front of the House, and they were trying to use computers to read them quickly or something. I haven't really, haven't really understood <laughs> yeah, that was, whole, it. Yeah, it was a different bill. That's right. Yeah, okay. it was a different bill, and it was... Uh... Yeah, but it delayed it delayed some of the debate on the Senate floor around Senate Bill 181. But um, there, there's not a lot of you know good faith efforts to to try and get to the heart of it. It's it's been really focused on making statements about one side uh, or the other, and so it'll be interesting. Again, coming out of the, the committee yesterday, I don't believe there were any amendments. There were several amendments that came out of different Senate committees and on the Senate floor that address different aspects, nothing really to change that. Although the sponsor suggested that some of the language that was offered an amendment should uh, assuage some of the fears on the potential consequences. I think it's debatable how, how well those did that, but nothing came out of the house committee. And I would imagine, you know, if they don't pass anything here in the house, any amendments, then I, I think uh, Senate can, they don't have to, I don't know the exact working, but don't have to go back to the Senate to make it easier to pass it more quickly without making more more adjustments. So, yeah, I think the rhetoric has been, been strong on either side and, and the willingness to dig into the details uh, and has been, been limited. Something that jumped out to me, I was reading about this, I think it was in the Denver Post, and someone was quoted in saying that really people shouldn't be worried about the impacts of this. People are overstating, you know, how much um, impact it could it could have. And as you said, your guys' lower bound that you've pr- provided in the, the, uh, in the study was a 33% permanent reduction. And I'm guessing you guys didn't just pick that number out of thin air, so seems to be one of those things like a lot of environmental issues where you have uh, rhetoric surrounding the, uh, the legislation that isn't really in, uh, in accordance with the facts. Yeah, it's, 
it's it's really just based on on, on uncertainty and, and really dealing with an industry that contributes directly anywhere from four to six six and a half percent of the state's GDP and not having enough certainty around what the impacts would even be, I think is really the, the threat. And whether it's oil and gas or any any company that has long term investments make is, is making long term decisions, that uncertainty is is really what uh, is risking investments now, and I think long term poses uh, some of the serious threats to different communities here uh, in the state. So, looking ahead, uh, what's next for SB 181? Uh, you mentioned that it, it's moved out of uh, committee in the House. Where do things go from here? Well, it has two more committees in the House before it's debated on the House floor. If it passes, then it would possibly make its way to the governor's or back to the Senate uh, and then to the governor's desk. And, and he's indicated support for the initial bill and so would likely, uh, would likely come into play. But the real, I think, question for the long-term economics is, what happens after that? And, and one of the things we haven't necessarily discussed is as these rules are being developed, the rules that are required under SB 181, even of state agencies to increase facility monitoring, to change rules around pooling applications, change the mission and the direction of the COGCC, as those rules are being developed, which takes months, years, and along with local rules and, and local governments that choose to enact their own rules, it's uncertain what happens to the permitting process at that point. And so that's that's a separate issue that has also been addressed in the fiscal note and in testimony um, as during that time frame, the, COG, the director of the COGCC would have uh, essentially sole discretion over flagging for further review any permits which he or she saw to be um, in conflict with this new mission. And the guidance that was issued has inclu- included things like uh, effectively a 2,500-foot setback that uh, we saw on the ballot last November. So it's, it's very uncertain. Even after this passes, I think what would be most critical is how those rules are developed and then what happens during that time as the rules are being developed to permits that are uh, being requested. So it's, it's just more uncertainty, but it, making its way to the legislature, as we've said, and uh, to be determined uh, what happens immediately following its, its likely passage. So your estimation is that we are going to see this signed into law by the governor? You know, again, I'm, I'm not in, in the prediction business. I'm in the projection business, but I think it seems very likely, given, given what I've read and what the indication from the governor has been and, and given the legislative makeup uh, here in Colorado. Okay, Chris, where can people go to, uh, to read the study that you guys put out and uh, to find out more information about uh, SB 181 from you guys? You can find the study at www.remipartnership.org, where we post all of our work. You can go to the Common Sense Policy Roundtable website as well, where there's some additional research and some additional work on a range of other issues we've been studying. But again, that just that just highlights the findings, uh, as we discussed, related to economics and the contribution of uh, oil and gas production to the state. 
Great. Is there anything that we overlooked on this that you want to mention before we go? You know, I think we touched on nearly everything. I think understanding the the impacts is really the most important. And, you know, while we believe that, you know, government should be providing sound guidance, I think it's the uncertainty and, and the long-term risk that uh, is most concerning. So just, I think we've emphasized that enough. Great. Our guest today has been Chris Brown of the Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks a lot, Chris. Hey, thank you both again.